What do you do when you have an unfinished project? What do you do when you have an unfinished book? Does anyone here have a bookmark in more than one book this morning? Yeah. I'm ashamed to admit how many bookmarks I have in books right now. And some of them have been unmoved for more than a year. I heard someone say that uh, a bookmark should be called a quitter strip. (laughs) Is that what it means when you put it in there for so long, you just end up quitting? You've gotten all you're going to get out of it? Um, I read in a book, in a book recently, uh, that you should take the number 100 and subtract your age from that, and that's how many pages you should give a book to decide whether or not you're going to keep reading it. So for me, take 33, I get... A book has 67 pages to convince me I should keep reading it. For some of you, that's 80. For some of you, that's 40 or maybe even 30. Uh, there's wisdom in that. Some books shouldn't, don't need to be finished. There are, especially with all the other good books out there, you might want to use your time wisely. And I've, I've taken that advice, and I've ended up not finishing more books than I would have otherwise because for the longest time, my tendency has been to fin- try to finish every book that I start. Um, maybe you're not into books, though, or maybe you just don't get to them as much as, as you think you would like to. But maybe it's true of other projects. What, how many unfinished projects do you have at home right now? Lots. And you might think of your honey-do list, but it could be other things. The backed-up scrapbooks that you want to get to, or that, that storage room that needs to be cleaned out for years, or this one or two boxes you still haven't opened since the last time you moved? What do you do when you have an unfinished project like that? My tendency with my projects is to get to a place where it's functional, and then I kind of start to lose interest. And I start thinking of other things that need attention. Uh, maybe it's because there are other things that need to be functional. I've got to get the water heater working before I can finish painting the trim. It could be a priority. Maybe that's just what I'm telling myself some of the times. This is more important. But it could just be that I'm distracted. I've been working on this one for so long that I just want to do something different now. What do you do? Maybe you, like me, sometimes you force it, whether it's a book and you just force yourself to finish it, or a project. You, you pull an all-nighter just to finish something, even if it's maybe not the most important thing. You just want it done. What happens when we force things like that? We normally end up with worse problems than we started with, right? What do you do with an unfinished project? Do you force it? Do you get distracted? Or do you just settle for functional? What do you do with areas of your life that are unfinished? Pockets of your spiritual life where there's more to be done. Areas that need attention in your family, in the church, in the world at large. What do you do with these unfinished things? So we look again at the book of Isaiah in chapter 52 this morning. and understand the history of the people of Israel. I think they're asking some of the same questions of themselves, or at least God is asking them. We've been looking at previous chapters and looking at both of the kingdoms, the the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah and the south, and how they both sinned, failed their covenants. They've had consequences and judgments for that. 
Uh, Isaiah wrote in the time period of 700 BC, 700 years before Christ was born. And some of the things he wrote about and the prophecies started to happen in his time frame. But things were still to come. There's still more judgments and then more blessings to come after that. A hundred years after Isaiah wrote the prophecies, Judah, the, the two southern tribes that were left, they were finally defeated. And they were taken into captivity all the way to Babylon. And by God's grace, through various circumstances, over the next 150 years, they started to come back and repopulate the land. The remnant has returned. Isaiah prophesied about that in chapter 10. We looked at that. Our text this morning, chapter 52, it was written in 700 BC, but it was written for the people that would be back in the land in 500 and 400 BC. And this is the beginning of the message that he has for them. Looking for my clicker. There it is. The beginning of the message is that God's redemption will be complete. They're in the land, and God is saying, there is a complete redemption coming. Read with me in verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, O holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. First words here, awake, awake. There has been this darkness with the judgments and the captivity, but now there's this new dawn Jerusalem, Zion has been rebuilt. They are no longer captives. They're told to loose the bonds from their neck. They had been sold into captivity, but now they are redeemed. It's as if Judah is experiencing a second exodus, like the exodus from Egypt that they know of in their history. But this one is not yet complete. The Jews in the remnant that have come back, they have their land back. They have Jerusalem back. They even have their temple back. But they don't have their kingdom back. And they might be wondering, is this what God meant? Is this one of God's unfinished projects? Do we need to do something about this? When the people of Israel were delivered out of Egypt a thousand years before, they were taken out of Egypt They wandered in the desert for 40 years, and then they were in the land. And then after they had a period of the judges, within 400 years, they had the kingdom. They had a king on the throne. There was the kingdom of Israel. And now these Jews are coming back from the captivity in this second type of exodus. They're dwelling in the land almost immediately. But then there's this period of almost 400 years where God is silent God doesn't say anything to his people. And then we get to the time of Jesus. We already read about that and sang about that this morning when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem almost 450 years later and the people are still wondering when is this kingdom going to be established? We're here. We have all the pieces. When is it all going to be put together? When is this going to be complete? 
They're still looking for the rest of that exodus. And they are free. They're, they're not captives like they were in Egypt or in Babylon. They're not slaves, but they still belong to another kingdom. They don't have their own kingdom. When they were taken into captivity, they were under the Babylonians. That quickly became the Persians. The Persians took them over, and then the Greeks. And then in the time of Jesus, the Jews are living under the rule of Rome. When will they have their own kingdom? They heard about the Exodus. They heard about the throne of the mighty King David, and they're still itching for that. But God, speaking to this remnant in the land, He's speaking of the fact that they've come back. He's beginning to tell them, this is not done yet. It's not complete. It's not just going to be like another exodus. It's actually going to be different. First, we see this here in verse 6. God says in verse 6, Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. There's more to come. My people shall know my name. That's future tense. But it's more than that. See, in the first exodus, when God came to deliver his people, he met Moses first on the the top of the mountain in in the burning bush. And he communicated to Moses. And then Moses was the one that went and spoke to the people. He had a mediator that he spoke to the people. God says here in this exodus, there's a point in time when it will be I who speak to you. He spoke to Moses, and Moses asked him what his name is, and God said, I am. I am who I am. And then Moses went and told the people that. But God says here in this second exodus, this redemption that is still to come, I will speak to you, and he will say, here I am. His people will see him. He will dwell with his people again. The remnant, it's back in Jerusalem. They have the temple back. But God's presence is not yet there. I am is not back speaking to them. It's not yet done. Look at me with verse 7. We already quoted this, sang this this morning, very familiar to us. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bring good news. Who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. There's a ring of truth to that. It was good news that they were no longer in Babylon. They were back in Jerusalem. But there was more to come. It wasn't just that there was going to be a kingdom. There's actually going to be a place where the person on the throne was God himself. Not just another king of Israel, but God himself. This is echoed down in verse 8. The last phrase there. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. God is not just announcing in this verse their geographical or their political deliverance out of Babylon or Persia, he's announcing that he will return to Zion. And further, God gives this picture that this will be a spiritual exodus, a a spiritual deliverance. It's not just that it's not complete yet, it's going to be very different than the first one. Look Look with me at verse 11. It says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. So in the same way that Israel departed Egypt, and they've departed Babylon and come back, God says there's still a departing that needs to be happening. And it's a spiritual 
Exodus, and he, he describes that with an interesting phrase here in this verse, the end of verse 11. He, he says, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. In Old Testament Israel, they had their system of law and their system of worship and, and sacrifices. And in the temple, they would use these different vessels for worship and sacrifice. And when Judah was captured and taken to captivity in Babylon, all of the vessels got taken out of, out of the temple. They were taken to Babylon. But when the people started to come back, King Cyrus sent all those back. They brought those vessels back with them. But it's not, that's not exactly what he's talking about because when the laws were set up to use those vessels, back at the first exodus, when they were wandering in the desert, they were using those vessels in the tabernacle. The tabernacle was mobile. They would go from place to place. And the only people that were allowed to carry those vessels were the tribe of Levi. But God is saying here in this exodus, in this deliverance, you, his entire people, will be the ones bearing the vessels. Not just the tribe of Levi. They will all now have the privileges and the responsibilities of priesthood. That they stand before God directly. This is something that's described at the end of time in Romans, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 5. Verse 10, it says, You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. All of God's people will have the position of a, a priest before God with the, the responsibilities that that entails. So there's something very different happening in this redemption. God is saying, You might be back in the land, but you're not yet fully redeemed. You might have the vessels and you have the temple and you have the priests even, but you don't have the true sacrifice that you need so that you can worship me in spirit and in truth. That is still coming. One other thing that God reminds Israel of to tell them, this is not yet complete. This is going to be a different type of deliverance. He tells them it's not just for Israel. Verse 10 the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. His arm, his power to save, is for the eyes of everyone. His salvation is for all the ends of the earth. In the first exodus, and in the remnant that's come back, Israel's in the land, but what does that do for the rest of the world? That's not the full scope of what God has planned. So God is challenging them. He's saying to them, you might see this as an unfinished project, but don't settle. Don't settle for just what's functional. Don't settle for just the piece of land. Just the first fruits. First fruits. This is only to whet your appetite. You ever settle for an appetizer? A lot of restaurants nowadays offer appetizer platters or the appetizers that are big enough to be an actual meal. But in the true sense of an appetizer, do you settle for an appetizer? Do you just want onion rings? Do you want just four mozzarella sticks? Is that going to fill you up or a small salad? Or maybe because you're so hungry, when the appetizer's there, you eat it up. You're trying to get more out of it than you should. And then when your steak comes, you're not as hungry. 
Do you ever settle for spiritual appetizers? I check off my Bible reading most days. I've never really dug into it, though. I've never really studied it. It's never really gotten into my heart and changed me. I have my ticket to heaven. I've never told anyone about Jesus. I can't say that I'm making disciples. I could definitely be a better parent or a spouse, but it's probably easier just to keep the status quo. Are you tempted to settle for those unfinished projects, those half measures of what spiritual life could be like? Israel was very tempted to settle for just the political, geographical redemption. They were thinking of the original Exodus, the original kingdom, and they were looking for just that last piece of the puzzle. Who was going to be the guy that would come and finish this project and be our king again? So God tells them, it's not complete, it's not done yet. You might like what you see, but there is more to come. This is only a shadow. And he tells them, the real surprise is, the king you think you need, it's going to be very different than what you expect. They had this picture of Moses, the heroic leader out of the Exodus, and David on the mighty throne. And they're just, who's the next guy? Who's going to come and set things right to complete this redemption? Who's this redeemer king going to be? And the rest of chapter 52 on into chapter 53 tells us who this redeemer will going to be, will be. How he's going to provide not just geographical and political redemption and exodus for Israel, but spiritual for all people. And to bring about this full promise, God tells them the redeemer will suffer. God's redeemer will suffer. Verse 13 is the beginning of a song. It's a song that flows through the rest of chapter and into chapter 53 through chapter 53. And it's one of four songs in this area of Isaiah, starting in chapter 42. There are four songs called the servant songs. Who is going to bring about these things? God's servant. And these songs paint a picture of what that servant is going to be like, who he's going to be, what he's going to do. And the title throws the reader probably right away, especially in Israel. They're expecting a king, but right away... He's called a servant. These are the servant songs. The first verse, behold my servant. King, servant, not normally the same people. But it doesn't mean that this servant will not be kingly. This verse 13, read with me. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. He shall be exalted. This is king language. Servant, but it's using king language. This is the language from Isaiah 6. God on his throne. The servant will be a king, as mysterious as that is at the beginning. On a whole other level, it's going to be God himself. This is the picture of God on the throne. I think we can imagine maybe the readers of Isaiah, the ones in the remnant, or maybe the ones even more at the time of Jesus, as he's coming into Jerusalem reading this and getting to this verse and maybe even stopping here 
There's a kingdom coming. There's going to be a king. Who is he? Where is he? When is he coming? One of my favorite songwriters, Andrew Peterson, imagines this in his song, So Long Moses. He writes these words. He says, Hail, King David, shepherd from Bethlehem. He set the temple of God in mighty Jerusalem. He was a king on a throne, full of power with a sword in his fist. Has there ever been, ever been a king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength? The hearts of the people are his. Hero Israel, was ever there a king like this? And then later, hello prophets. The kingdom is broken now. The people of God have been scattered abroad. So speak, Isaiah, prophet of Judah. That's who we're listening to. Can you tell of the one who's going to come? Will he be a king on a throne, full of power, with a sword in his fist? Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this, full of wisdom, full of strength? The hearts of the people are his. Prophet, tell us, will there be another king like this? Unfortunately, it seems that most of the people of Israel did not keep reading after this verse, or keep listening, or maybe they chose to ignore If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about they didn't have the full perspective of history that we have. They they just passed through this judgment and they're looking ahead at the kingdom that's coming. But we, with history playing out and understanding the New Testament, we see the remnant that return in the kingdom are actually very far apart. They're separated by many, many years. And we see from a scripture that in between those, there's the suffering servant. They didn't have this full perspective and everything that we get to have, but they couldn't have claimed ignorance about this suffering servant. It's right here. It was here for 700 years. The song that I quoted to you, it goes on to summarize the rest of chapter 53. We're going to look at that in more depth Friday night, our good communion, or I'm sorry, good Friday communion service. I, I encourage you to be here Uh, to meditate on the truths of this most focal, most quoted Old Testament chapter. And it summarizes this. The people ask the prophet Isaiah, what is our king going to be like? And his answer is, he'll bear no beauty or glory, rejected, despised. A man of such sorrow will cover our eyes. He'll take up our sickness and carry our tears. For his people he will be pierced. He'll be crushed for our evils, our punishment feel, and by his wounds we will be healed. That's Isaiah 53. Our chapter, 52, just begins to introduce this idea at the beginning of the song of the suffering servant. In verse 14, we read, Many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The Jews who were waving palms and quoting Psalm 118 on Palm Sunday, they wanted a king on a throne. They saw this Jesus, they thought it could be him. I think they thought too, maybe we can give him a little nudge. Maybe we can force this. If we start the kingly proceedings, we praise him as our king, we act like he is our king, maybe the exodus from Rome will come. But as that week went on, and as Jesus 
went like a lamb to the slaughter. They were astonished. He became one from whom men hide their faces. And this speaks negatively of the people of Jerusalem, of their hearts. He wasn't becoming the king that they wanted. And as we've already commented this morning, as you probably already know, many who shouted his praise, days later shouted, crucify him. They couldn't stomach someone who appeared so weak when they needed a strong king. They had no patience, no sympathy for someone who didn't usher in the political redemption that they expected and they demanded. So God is telling them here in our text, hundreds of years before, you might see this as an unfinished project, but don't force the king issue. King will come, but not when and how you think. He has to be a suffering servant first. See this throughout Israel's history. In that time period of silence, there were many men who tried to raise up arms against Rome, called themselves various forms of Messiah, and all of them were crushed. They tried to force the kingdom issue, and they were crushed. It's not just an Israel problem. At the turn of the century, back in the 1800s, coming into the 1900s, things were going really well. Tons of technological advances. Everybody was prosperous. It was the industrial age. There's a lot of peace around the world. And there were theologians and secular people alike who thought, hey, we're close to getting this thing right. We're close to getting this perfect civilization And the theologians actually thought, we're close to bringing in the kingdom. We're about to build the kingdom. And they forced it. And what happened when they forced it? World War I broke out. The deadliest human conflict to date. Millions, 20 million maybe, died because people tried to force the kingdom on a world that has not been fully redeemed yet. We might be tempted to force things, force change in the world that can only come from the suffering servant bringing about full redemption. We might be tempted to force change in other people's lives, to be the Holy Spirit and make the changes that we think they need to make. Might force change in our own lives, trying to tack on what we think we need to look like to be right with God instead of what the suffering servant will bring as he redeems us. John MacArthur summarizes this whole scenario. He said, but he could not bring his kingdom in its fullness with all its promises until he had provided salvation for his people. His kingdom is a kingdom of salvation. People in his kingdom are people who have been saved from their sins. There can't be a kingdom for Israel or anybody else until sin has been paid for. They couldn't be delivered from their enemies. They couldn't be delivered from their circumstances. They couldn't be delivered from their suffering until they had been delivered from their sin. And that was why he had to die and rise again. And that's the gospel. Summarized in Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He didn't come to be a king right away, but to serve and give his life 
as a ransom for many. This is the missing part of the redemption project. This is what is incomplete. Maybe you were wondering, we were reading earlier, the verses from Psalm 118, the same verses that the people of Jerusalem quoted as Jesus was entering in triumphantly. Maybe you're thinking, is this, can we say these same things? Is this the right thing to say? I mean, we know that they probably were the same ones that shouted crucify him. Should we be copying them? Yes. Those praises are for Jesus. But make sure you have the right Jesus. Not a Jesus of your own making. What you want Jesus to be for you. Make sure you get Jesus right. He is, first of all, the suffering servant. He's not just suffering for the sake of suffering. He's not just a tragic martyr or using his suffering as a moral object lesson. He's not a Mahatma Gandhi whose suffering was a political protest or that uh, Vietnamese monk, his name is Quang Duc, that famous picture from the Vietnam era, him immolating himself in protest of the South Vietnamese government. This is not Nelson Mandela, whose imprisonment was used to garner pity for his cause. The suffering of this servant was far more purposeful, far more intentional, and served us far more than anything else. This suffering was for atonement, for the wrath of God against sin to be absorbed. There are many things that we could say about this. We can't get into chapter 53. We'll do that more Friday. We still can't move on too quickly from this. I want to ask you, Have you contemplated what it means that the servant suffered to the point that it was said he was marred beyond human semblance? That when people saw him, they were astonished. This is a picture of God's hatred of sin. Alistair Begg said, Our sin must be absolutely horrendous if it takes the death of God's only Son to fix it. Sin is that bad. Albert Moeller, a seminary president, I was listening to him talk about an experience he had when he went to the theater to watch The Passion of the Christ many years ago when it came out. He talked about this idea of fully grasping this suffering and and what our response should be to it. And first of all, noted the fact that this movie, a mostly historically accurate depiction of what a crucifixion would look like, had an R rating. Crucifixion is violent, it's graphic. And maybe you had the same experience he had as you watched in the theater at home. He said there were times when he could not keep watching. He had to turn away. And there's a reality and a sense here of this astonishment and and turning away is a natural thing because of how horrific it is. 
But he also noted that as he was turning away, he observed others whose eyes were still on the screen, but it seemed like their hearts were turned away from the truth that was there. Because they were watching this, and they were eating popcorn. When you look at the cross, can you see the weight that sin has and God's wrath against sin and eat popcorn? Is your heart turned away from the reality of what is on display there? Or do you fully understand it so that you actually physically, your eyes have to turn away because it is a horrible thing? And not just sin and judgment in general, we should see when we look at the cross, we should see how horrific our sin is. When we see Christ dying on the cross, we should understand how much God hates every one of my sins. Quote a little bit from Isaiah 53 here, verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Verse six, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you grasp that? I wanna ask you first, do you grasp that's who Jesus is? That he hates sin that much? But that also he took that sin on himself. He tainted himself with, he lowered himself into weakness and humiliation and even scandal to take that sin for us. In some cultures, a weak God like that is not worth following. That might be a temptation for you. I don't know that that's really common with us. I think more of our temptation is misunderstanding how bad sin is. Do you understand this picture of sin that the only way it can be forgiven is through the shedding of blood? Our culture doesn't like to think of having to be forgiven. There's a recent politician, you might figure out who he is. When he was asked, have you asked God to forgive you? He said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so. I think if I do something wrong, I just try to make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. I think in terms of let's get on and make it right. That's not the sin that's on display on the cross. Thinking of God up there, maybe he'll just write off my sin like a tax write-off. He's good and big enough that he can just forgive all sin. That is not the picture here. If you have not been astonished by what Jesus suffered and why he suffered, what your sin cost, and perhaps you've not fully understood the depths of the gospel. And if these things are true, that God's redemption will be complete because God's redeemer will suffer, then you, God's redeemed, you must proclaim the redeemer. 
you must announce this servant. We've looked at you know, different eras of time, the Exodus, the time Isaiah wrote, the time of the remnant, the time of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But I want to ask you to follow me more up to where we are, the church age. What does this have to do with us now? The famous verse we read from this chapter, verse 7, how beautiful on the feet, I'm sorry, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. God is the one announcing their return and the full redemption to come. But then we get to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 places this announcing of the good news squarely in our laps. Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How will people know that the suffering servant, he took their horrible sin so that they could be fully redeemed? How are they supposed to know that unless someone tells them? If you know that, it's because someone told you. How are the rest of them supposed to know unless we preach to them? Preaching is not just the job of the professional preacher, it's the action of proclaiming this good news. And how beautiful are the feet who take that good news. The feet are not beautiful in themselves. I don't think anyone thinks that. They're beautiful because they bring the good news of peace, happiness, salvation. But feet, they're meant to go. These are not feet that are kicked up on an ottoman. And if someone perhaps chances to sit down and ask, how can I be saved? We'll announce the peace then. These are feet that go. Ephesians 6, speaking of the gospel in terms of armor, says, as shoes for your feet, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. If you have heard the good news, if you have tasted of the beginning of the redemption that the suffering servant brings, put on these shoes the readiness to go. Get ready. Get ready, you redeemed, to proclaim the Redeemer. Servants, announce the servant. And when you do, make sure you get the servant right. Proclaim the right Jesus. This bloody Jesus that men hide their face from and are hesitant to speak about. Bloody because of sin. Bloody because sin needs to be forgiven. Don't offer a Jesus who just has a wonderful plan for your life. Or a Jesus who will just come in and fix everything so you can have the kingdom that you've been waiting for. We don't just need a little help. We need someone to save us. We don't just need the Jesus in the footprints poem that when you're really tired and really having a hard time, he'll carry you. We need someone who will come in and step into your life, unzip you, climb inside you, and totally change the way you live. And he can only do that because he's died for your sin. We need to say, proclaim the Jesus who says you can't do anything to make it right yourself. You cannot make yourself better. We need the Jesus who says that your sin is so bad that he had to die. 
And the only thing that you can do is repent in humility and faith. Servants, announce this servant. He is worthy to be proclaimed. And get ready for this good news to take you where you never thought you would go. Maybe that's your neighbor next door. Or the other house on the block that you've never spoken to anyone there. Or that really difficult person at work or in your family. Or maybe it's somewhere on the entirely other side of the world. To people who have never heard this good news. That's where these feet should take us because that's where this good news needs to go. I'm close with Philippians chapter two. Philippians chapter two speaks of the humility of the suffering servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. We know the good news so that they can come and do that now. They can worship him rightly now. How can we not? Let's pray. God, you are worthy to be proclaimed. You are worthy to be announced and by better lips than ours. But you want our feet to go. And we pray that you would work in our hearts so that we would say, Lord, here I am, send me. God, I pray that if there is somewhere you want me to go, that I would be obedient to go. My feet would take me, whether that's here, across the street, or somewhere else entirely. God, may many hear of this suffering servant and believe, and be redeemed. How beautiful is the good news, and how beautiful are the feet of those who take it. God, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.